how relationship is how we relate to anything. And something that I love, I forget where I heard this from, but if you're in a relationship with someone or you have a friendship and you're labeling them as something, you know, they're this, they're that, or whatever, well, you're actually not in relation to them anymore. The minute you label them and define them, you're no longer relating to them as who they are in that moment. You're relating to them as some past version of themselves. So you're not actually in relation. So to truly be in relation to anything is to be present with it in that moment, whether it is a person or a tree. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Discover More, where we strive to accelerate the learning process together through intentional dialogues. My name is Benoit. And my name is Aiden. This podcast was built on the foundation of approachable guests, synthesized experiences, and relatable lessons that will help you grow throughout your journey. Thank you for tuning in this week. We hope you enjoy and continue to discover more. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Discover More. This week's guest is Joshua Greenfield. He's a man of many interests and gifts. Joshua is a well-known YouTuber in the community space of food, music, and now barefoot culture. Before he embarked on a spiritual journey to discover his true self, he was a co-founder of a popular food show, Brothers Green. The channel was first founded with his brother in 2013, which now has rebranded into Home Pro Cooks and has over 2.6 million subscribers. His recent video about his one-year journey of embracing the new barefoot lifestyle packed with many unique and invaluable insights, has gone viral on Unilad and has gathered more than 10 million views in merely a couple of months. Yashua comes with a wide-ranging and fascinating experiences, from hosting food shows on MTV and Hungry Channel to cooking food for celebrities while making videos and traveling around the world, and now being a voice and advocate for the barefoot culture. Through his lifestyle channel on YouTube, You Enjoy Life. He ran his first barefoot marathon in the mountains on May 2021, which took him about seven hours to finish. Yes, you heard that right. Not just a marathon, but a marathon in the mountains. And this is only one of endlessly fascinating experiences he's created in the past few years living in Colorado. Joshua is a published author of the six book series, which includes Cooking with Your Best Friend, and now the latest, Walking Barefoot with Your Best Friend. He also released his first solo record called You and the Everybody Band. He does not subscribe to any boxes, but rather describes himself as a lover of nature, music, cooking, and of course, bare feet. You can find Joshua on Instagram at youenjoylife. Joshua, welcome to the show. Well, that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, very, very excited for this conversation and the many different lanes of directions we will be inevitably embarking on throughout the next few hours. With that introduction said, there is no better opportunity to discuss your most recent feats, a feat that I could only consider from afar as impressive. So I know we watched a lot of your videos and we've done a lot of research for this episode. And I know that the marathon you did, Bare Feet in the Mountains about three months ago, is one of your many and of course your most recent activities. And you may not view it as an achievement, of course, since you subscribe to no boxes and larger than that. And I know one of the key elements you alluded to in the video was that 
you weren't there for a checklist, you weren't there for a placement, a ranking, you were there to experience, right? To expand your horizon of understanding with the nature. Just like such like a milestone and such an impressive experience. And I think it's not an experience that many people share. So we would love to start from there and just go straight to it is we'd love to hear about your personal account of what that experience meant for you and what it means still now. Yeah, sometimes I do things and I don't fully understand why until after they're done. I get a feeling of like, okay, this this should happen. And then it becomes very useful about how it happens. Um, I don't necessarily understand the outcome yet, but I find that life is like, we have these goals, these ideas or desires, and they're great to like set us on a path, but it's not until we get there that we're a whole different person. So that's when you realize it's really about the journey and never about the destination. And it's exactly how I felt about doing this Barefoot Marathon. I didn't know why I was doing it. I knew I had to do it. I wasn't questioning that. It was like, oh, it was definitely moments of like, should I be doing this? This is crazy. Like what, like can I do it? You know, I had those like those fear little pockets come up, but I knew that it was, there was a reason I signed up for it and I was training for it. Um, and it was a beautiful experience and I really walked away just with such a new profound appreciation for feet. And that was what it was all about. And like you said, it had nothing to do with uh, beating a certain time or score or trying to impress people or anything like that. It was just, it took me on this journey to understand the magic that feet are and to understand natural movement and foot functioning and health and sensation in a way that I had not before. So the year and a half of training for it, or year or however long it was, taught me so much about feet. And that was unexpected. You know, and even making video, I didn't expect to be making videos about feet. <laughs> but I also didn't expect to be making videos about cooking. You know, these were very, like, just casual things I was sharing because I genuinely enjoyed them. And it's cool to see when other people are like, oh, that's, yeah, I'm into that. And that's what drives me when I see other people wanting to find more information or asking me lots of questions. That's why I wrote the Barefoot book because I was getting thousands of comments every day and people asking about different issues with their feet. And I was like, I'm just going to write a book about everything I know. That's amazing, man. I think we're going to want to definitely zoom in on that barefoot component. Know that there's a lot to learn in that domain and something that we've never had really experience about. And I think it's a huge part of the human experience. But before we go there, I'm fascinated with the intuitive voice that you kind of alluded to. I think that's something that we all go through and kind of hear that inner knowing. And to what you said, you had some doubts, you had that inner critique of hey maybe I'm crazy maybe this isn't the right thing to do like the inner critic always comes up and I think that's something that people across the world struggle with so I was wondering if you could walk us through that mental process of how you learn to lean into that intuitive voice so deeply and kind of just speak to someone that might be struggling with listening to their voice finding critiques from the outside world and really your mental journey around that yeah so there's a lot of stuff to that, but just to start, you know, I didn't grow up in like a, a, I didn't have any kind of spiritual background or anything growing up. And so when I started to like learn about words like universe and consciousness and awareness and these bigger terms that are kind of esoteric and sort of, what do you mean? Like you can say the universe, like, oh yeah, the universe and the stars. When somebody like talks about like trust, like I trust the universe and like the universe will provide for me or God will provide whatever word you want to know use for this bigger greater thing um, when I started tuning into that it was like learning to trust a person or learning to trust 
yourself where like it's these slow little things like okay people say trust the universe it's going to provide for me what the hell does that even mean and how do i even start to do that so i just started experimenting with little things and uh, you know it started really in new york city for me when i was going through this kind of awakening process and it was just small stuff at first and what i started noticing is the more i looked at like the symbols and signs of my life the more things started to make sense. So when I was like really focusing on what I love to do and trusting that like I would always have enough to provide for myself, you know, I'd always have just enough money, I'd always have um, the things, food and the basic things that I needed, they started showing up in these really fascinating ways. And so like to learn to trust the universe, it sounds it's so like elusive almost in a sense until it's not and then suddenly it just becomes the way. So this morning I was, um, took someone on this nature walk and what I do is I'll, I'll do these walks where if somebody's struggling with something I'll just we'll go on a hike and I'll let them just talk about what they're feeling and then we'll sit down and we'll do some different types of processing and some physical embodiment stuff and you know he was asking me about like how do you really like find that voice and how do you learn to trust that voice and what's really interesting for me to translate that is that I've spent years learning this language it's like a new language so it doesn't just come at once you can't just say oh, I'm just gonna just trust and just jump in like it's these little tiny incremental shifts where you trust something small like maybe there's something coming up some opportunity or you're worried you're going to miss your flight you know it's like a really something really simple it's like i'm stressed out and i only have an hour to get to the airport or whatever and you're worried you're going to miss your flight and you're like i'm just going to try something different because worry isn't going to help me at all it's not going to do anything so what if i just like sit and i just trust that it's all going to work out perfectly and you do that once and then it does it doesn't mean you make your flight but it means that like Maybe you didn't make your flight, but then because you missed your flight, this whole other thing happens, right? Or you made your flight perfectly and you're like, oh, the stress wasn't gonna help me out because it was like, I was meant to get on this flight. So I'm very symbolic in nature and I'm aware that I'm creating these ideas and these stories to, to navigate life in a way. But the more I tune in and listen, the more things become obvious. A really good example is um, my friend today, we were talking about like choices trying to figure out where you wanted to live. It's like, I have this opportunity, I have this opportunity, this or that. For me, I don't make choices anymore. Choices are illusions. That makes sense. Like, we think we were choosing between two things, but once the thing that we're supposed to do becomes clear, the other thing wasn't even really an option. And so if you live in a state of choice, there's a chance of regret. And that's what he was saying today. He's like, well, if I choose this, but then I don't do this, if this doesn't work out, I'm going to regret not doing this. If you're living in this state of choice, then there's always going to be the chance of regret or doubt or fear. But if you're tuning into what you really want and what you really need, well, then there is no choice. The other thing is, is just like the illusion hiding. Once that goes away, then the, the obvious thing is there. Wow. There's just like the question. There's a lot there. So I just want to highlight a few things for the listeners. I love your constructive approach in a sense. Of course, that's your way of viewing the world. And I do agree with you that the life, at least that's my personal belief and my practices is that life itself is inherently meaningless, right? There's no such thing as meaning, at least I view it. However, many people may become nihilistic because they're like, what's the point, right? What's the point of this finite, limited time span that I spend on this planet Earth? But I take the other approach and many people do as well where, oh, so since life is meaningless inherently so, I feel more empowered to attach the meaning I want to view the world through because I view life through different lenses and your different experiences contribute and create different lenses that you feel equipped with and moving forward. 
So I do definitely want to highlight that. And the second thing you alluded to was you view this intuitive whisper or your ability to be receptive towards the nature, towards your intuition as a language. And we view everything on this show as a skill, as a practice, right? Just like anything, whether you ran your first marathon uh, without any shoes on or whether you're trying to swim for the first time or you're meditating for the first time, all those are simply boiled down to neural pathways. And whether do you have the neural pathways to built in that supports your habits, supports your decisions, supports these new experiences, which is extremely, extremely profound for us. And of course, you cross over a lot throughout your stories, but I just wanna zoom in on what you talked about where it started off for you in New York City, that you weren't really spiritual growing up, you didn't really grow up with exposure of spirituality per se, but you first realized that there is such thing as intuitive whisper. We'll love to ask for the specifics. Was there some sort of an event or catalyst that prompted this recognition, this awakening stage in New York City? So I guess before I moved to New York City, I had started a band in college. And prior to that, I had no, like I like playing music and I like cooking. I was really into them, but they were definitely not career choices. You know, they, they, they were just these like hobbies. You know, I didn't consider myself artistic. I didn't think I was good at either of them, but I love them. So I was directionless and I, I, unlike most kids that seemed like they knew exactly what they wanted to do, I'm gonna go to this school and be a doctor and like, I had no idea. So I went to school with just zero ambition. And then I met a guy and we became good friends and he was an amazing musician and suddenly music, within an instant, there was a no, that was the first knowing I ever had. He played a song for me and I said, this song's gonna be a hit, we're starting a band. And like, I don't know what came up for me because I was not a confident kid. It was just like this wave just like took over my life. And for 10 years, like I dove into that. So that was the first sense of like, whoa, I can like actually take who I am, the embodiment of who I am and like share it in a certain way. So things were going well. And then, and I had started to get into meditation a little bit in college. You know, I struggled with ADHD and took a lot of medication as a kid and then meditation and music were able to help me get off medication and never take it again. But when I moved to New York City, things were seemingly going well. Um, and I had this job where I was basically in my car all day. It was kind of the whole long story. Basically I was a private eye for like a year and um, I was just like driving around kind of like doing surveillance and stuff. But I was mostly in my car and I would just be journaling all day. And I had just gone through a breakup and I was just spending hours and hours and hours all day sitting there with my thoughts. And it was the first time I ever really got into journaling. And I, what would happen is I would write all this stuff that I believed, like, here's why the breakup happened, here's why we didn't work out, this is what I want to do. And then the next day I would go back and I would read what I wrote and be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then I would write something totally, this is the truth, you know, and then the next day that was, this is the truth. And then I hit this point, kind of like you were saying, you know, life is meaningless. And I actually, that sunk me into this deep depression. I was like, life is pointless. Everything's made up, words are made up, ideas, beliefs, they're all just that what's the point of living? So I went to this really deep state of depression and I was just like, I just, life had no point. And even though I was in this band and life was good and I was living in Brooklyn and doing cool things or whatever, I just was like, there's no point to live. So I stayed in that state, I don't know, maybe it was a few weeks, that time was kind of weird um, as it is. And then what really shifted was one day I was with a friend and we were in Union Square and we saw this Buddhist demonstration and we were talking about Buddhism and I was like, I don't actually know anything about it. It seems interesting, it seems peaceful, but I really have no concept of what it is. 
so that day I was walking home and I saw this book on the street someone was selling called like it was like a Buddha it was almost like a little bathroom reader it was like a little Buddhism book and I went home still depressed and I started reading it and almost instantly I felt like Buddha nature just like take over my body it was the craziest feeling like I felt like instant like it was almost like instant enlightenment I know it's not really a thing but it was like this feeling of I felt like I was the Buddha like his consciousness was just like whoosh, like downloaded it to me and everything he was talking about made perfect sense to this experience of emptiness and meaninglessness. And suddenly my whole trajectory just changed. Because what I saw was here is this guy, uh, and there's lots of stories and fables about the Buddha, but on a very simple level, and as I began studying just very classical Buddhist teaching without a lot of the dogma, just this guy that went out into the world and saw that there was suffering and saw that like there was a way to end suffering and that suffering came from attachment and that life was transient and emotions were always shifting. And if you try to grab onto something, inevitably it's going to go away and then you're going to suffer. And that just completely shifted my whole reality. And that's when I started understanding more about consciousness and connection and that separation was an illusion and all these different things. So it really kicked off my journey. Um, and I can, I could go deeper into what I got from Buddhism, but the biggest thing was understanding attachment and permanence and how I could apply them in a way to be able to really give myself to life, like really give without the fear of losing anything. I love that. That's such a powerful story on so many levels. Um, I think it speaks to your personal experience and then even the divine timing of it all, right? You find this random book on the side of the street, you attend this demonstration, seems to happen as if it's supposed to lead you down this path in some ways. I'd love to hear more about Buddhism's effect on your life, but maybe in the light of someone listening that's really struggling with their mental health. Like it seems like you've dove very, very deep on a lot of these teachings, but maybe unpack the detachment idea or a little bit or something that really struck you that people can take away into their own life. Like did you suddenly get rid of a lot of your possessions or implementing these Buddhist philosophies, how did that show up in your everyday life? Maybe as potential, not necessarily advice, but just your two cents to someone that might be struggling or at the bottom uh, within their mental health. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different things I can talk about. And one that really comes up is self-doubt. And it's an example that can be applied to so many different things. So let's say, I know a lot of people that struggle with doubt, right? They have doubt, they're struggling because they have, yeah, I'm a self and I have doubt and I'm doubting myself because X, Y, Z, I really want to do this thing. I want to take this leap. I want to start my own business, but like I doubt my ability to do it. So what I say is rather than try to say, okay, I need to have more self-confidence. That's usually, it's like I have self-doubt, so I need to have self-confidence. I need to have self-love. I need to like take on more things. What I say on the flip side is rather than do that, what you should do is recognize that the self that's doubting isn't really a self, that's an illusion. So you're saying self and doubt, what you're doing is you're creating an idea, you're creating this self that doubts. And no matter how much you try to put love and confidence and you know self whatever, it's still within this context of this self that's doubting. So instead of doing that, start to dissolve this false self because when we create a character, if we try and reinforce that character, we're going to get stuck in that character's patterns. So what I say is look at the character, take the mask off, strip the idea of the self away, and then the result of that is often confidence, connection, 
love, all the things you're looking for. Those are almost the side effects of the destruction of the self. I think people are so scared to let go of the false self that they put on all these other things. So no, I'm a doctor. No, I have money. I'm smart. I'm wealthy. I'm fun. Like we put on all these identities with on ourself and that self doesn't exist. And you can do that and you can build it up. But if the foundation is weak, no matter how much you put onto this false self, inevitably it's going to cause you struggle. So what I do is I looked at this false self that I was and spent so much time, so, so, so much time destructing that self. And the same thing can be applied to depression. It's actually this guy, um, James Foster, I believe his name is. He talks about depression is like the root of it is depression, deep rest, deep rest, right? Like depressed, deep rest. Like when we go into this deep state of rest, because we're trying to play this character that's not real. And I don't want to say that I like understand every element of depression, but I've been depressed myself. I know a lot of people that have been depressed. And what I've come to see that's very valuable for people in that state with mental health issues is the reason they're probably going to this state of depression. It's like our body trying to signal to us, like I'm putting in so much energy to create this false person in the world that people want me to be. So my body is just shutting down. And I sense that now whenever I'm in a place that's not resonating or if I'm around people that I don't resonate with, I start to get tired. I start to yawn. I'm just like, oh, I kind of like check out because I can't even, I can't even put energy towards it anymore. And I spent a lot of my life trying to put all this energy to be liked, to be loved, to fit in. And it made me depressed because that's not who I was. So when I started to look at why my body was trying to go into a state of rest, trying to go to this state of just like containing, closing itself off, it was because it needed to conserve energy. So the more I looked at this false self that was trying to be loved, then the depression starts to live. That's actually, so I do have background in mental health and clinical psychotherapy, but that's the a very unique perspective that I never considered before, is you're arguing that at least in your own words, in your context of your experiences, that the entire foundation of what causes depression is because that's built on this false, idolized sense of self that we feel so attached to or called to with the layers of, you know, a false sense of, or maybe insecure identity, right? Like the confidence, like the love that we're craving for. And I think it comes into full circle, the way you described it is, in a way, in your experiences, the way you cured your depression was actually detaching from the pursuit itself. And by a product of that was that you were able to fill yourself, your true sense of self, with the love, with the connections, with the compassion, with the connectivity that you feel so called to. Uh, before we continue, I'd love to ask you for your personal definition of spirituality, because obviously the idea and the ethos of spirituality shines through with every single statement and every single word you speak. Obviously, the word spirituality has become tainted, and a lot of people have become allergic to what we call spirituality because of all these self-proclaimed gurus on the internet. Uh, but I think you do feel qualified in your perspective to comment on this, and would love to see how you approach and perceive spirituality as? Mm, yeah, I mean, rather than try to define spirituality, I, I will first say that, yeah, I, I get somewhat turned off by the word because of what it's become, but it's no different than music and what music has become. Like music on a very basic level to me is, is so much. It's, it's life, it's healing, it's medicine, it's connection. And then there's also music that's pop music that's three minutes long that's like contained within a little thing and it's sold and commodified and copied and all these things. That can also be beautiful too. 
but when we start placing what music is into this box, it kind of ruins like the totality of it. And I think that spirituality is kind of the same way when we start throwing the word around a lot, suddenly it defines all these different things that can even be contradicting. Um, so I think at the heart of maybe what people are talking about spirituality is like having some deeper connection to, you know, what's what all of this is. And as, as most of us know, words are also made up and they can do a pretty good job at explaining some things. But as I also speak about in conversations with your best friend, um, I used to do this thing where when I first got into writing, because I was never a writer and I never read a book until college and I was a really bad English student. And I started doing this experiment where I would think of a word and look up the definition. And then I would pick words in the definition and look up those words until I got back to the first word. And I started realizing it's like this cycle that ever, all words just describe other words, right? And we can attach meaning to them and different things. So the issue is when somebody says spirituality, they might think, and this is, I think this is the, the big point here is like, when someone says that this person's spiritual or they say that they're a guru, they're enlightened, we often have like a vision of what that guru looks like. Maybe it's like turban, long beard, you know, whatever, like talks very peaceful and life is beautiful. You know, like whatever we think, it's the same with the Buddha. Like you can say, I want to be Buddhist. And okay, so the Buddha had a shaved head. I'm going to shave my head. Buddha wore uh, sandals. I'm going to throw my shoes away, just put sandals on and just go around eating rice. But that has nothing to do with Buddhism. That's just all the superficial things that we're making it mean. So I've met a lot of people that seem extremely spiritual. And what I'm finding more and more is oftentimes the more spiritual a person looks, the more full of crap they are. <laughs> and I, am, I don't wanna say that across the board, but I generalize, but it's like, what are you really covering up? And the reason I bring that point up is because some of the most like just in tune people that I've ever met are people that you would not expect. Having those conversations like someone at the checkout counter at a grocery store or something, or just a person that is wearing what shorts and a t-shirt or they're at the beach. Like if we start defining what we think spirituality is based on how people look or how they dress or how many books they've sold, we often miss like the beauty of it. That's something that's been really helpful for me. And that was something I discovered in my pursuit of Buddhism because I was getting into Buddhism and for the first maybe three months, I was just fully immersed. And I'm someone who will like, when I'm into something, like it's like tunnel vision. That's that's why I've been able to write like books very quickly. And you know, in a week, I can like write a book because like not everything just and I just go into a flow state. So when I was like really deeply studying Buddhism, I was reading all the books, I was practicing, I was meditating, I was applying it to my life and seeing how it was working and blowing my mind. And then I started going to. I was like, I should meet some other Buddhists. Like I don't. I've never literally met another Buddhist. This is all my own experience through books and through my own practice. When I started meeting Buddhists, I started seeing that side where people were doing it because it was cool or it was a very hierarchy. You know, like we only listen to the teacher. The teacher knows everything. And we don't question the teacher. And, and so that kind of turned me off from it. And not from Buddhism, like at the heart of it, but from like a lot of the dogma that had kind of crept in over the years. Um, I imagine it's similar with like Christianity, like Jesus seems like super awesome, cool, you know, homie. And yet like a lot of the stuff around it now, like people hear Christianity or religion, they like freak out. So I've, I discovered a book in a very interesting way called Spiritual Enlightenment, The Damnedest Thing. Have you guys heard of it? Mm -hmm. Very few people know about the book. Um, and, but it's been the most impactful book in my life. 
and it's by this author, his name's Jed McKenna, found this book and someone was like reading it. I was like, what's, it sounded interesting, like the damnedest thing, like what? Spiritual enlightenment, the damnedest thing. And I started reading it and I finished the whole book in a day and it was just like one of those, I can't stop reading this book. And basically here was this guy, Jed McKenna living out in like Iowa on this like ashram farm kind of thing. And he was just living. He's like, I'm enlightened and I live and I, you know, I ride my bike and I skydive and I eat food and I go for walks and I talk to people and people just come to this place that he created people that are struggling with different spiritual pursuits, or maybe they've been like, had a guru for 20 years meditating, but they still are struggling. And he just kind of like, kind of throws the whole thing on its head. And he really like helped me be really extremely discerning about spirituality and where like the materialistic spiritual marketplace often slips in. And like, what's like the real meat of it? You know, like what really matters? And it's very simple, like that which cannot be simpler. Um, and the crazy thing about Jeb McKenna that I discovered you know, within a few days of trying to research him was that he doesn't exist, that he's actually a pen name, not a real person, and still have no idea who wrote these books. And he has like a whole trilogy of books now. So the most influential books in my life, the author isn't even real. And the reason I bring that up is because it forces you to not get caught up on this person that you're reading about. He always says like, you know, if there's a finger pointing at the moon, like don't focus on the finger, like focus on the moon. You know, so it's like somebody's giving you like a tool for guidance and you get caught up in them and how they're dressed and what they eat and what their whole life, well, you're missing the point. You know, you're distracting yourself. And then I say, point the finger back at yourself. Anytime you point the finger outside at someone, it's like, how can we look back into ourselves? So yeah, spirituality, it's on a very simple level. I really appreciate it. I don't use the word often because of a lot of the connotation around it, but I think it's important to make that distinction so that people maybe don't get too caught up in a lot of this stuff, the shiny, glimmery stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting paradox in the fact that he had, he stripped his name out of the author of the book. It's almost like the idea that came up for me is almost removing the mask that you initially alluded to. And then similarly, by removing his own personal identity mask, he's facilitating removing the masks around spirituality kind of that you just outlined with those ideas out there of removing the masks both on the identity level and then that collective like terminology language level the question that really comes up is like if we're removing all the masks then what's left that is the question to ask um, for yourself for anyone listening what's left and we'll go back to um and while what you were talking about earlier is like the, the meaninglessness. The reason I share this is because Jed talks about this process he calls spiritual autolysis. And, the, uh, and it's something, a word he made up, but it's basically like purging of everything. Writing down what you know to be true, literally writing and writing and writing until you get to something that you are certain, that you've looked at every angle and like completely analyzed, and that you still know that it is full and clear truth because most things that we're writing about are beliefs, ideas, which are fine, but they're still beliefs and ideas. So he's kind of like, take a torch and burn everything to the ground, and what's left is, is real, right? And that's like the, the analogy for fire. Um, so what I had realized in reading his books was that's exactly what happened to me before I found Buddhism. I was in my car, writing all these things that I believed to be true. This is who I am, and this is why but then I kept doing the same thing where it was like, no, that's wrong, tearing that up, next thing, until I hit this place of emptiness. 
And what the Buddha allowed me to like change was to say, okay, yes, life is empty and meaningless, but that's actually beautiful. And that was just my own like merging of like, oh, yeah, cool. That's like that's that's freeing. And then once you're in this state of freeness, once you like wake up, well, then like you get to this flow state where you're beyond just like thoughts and ideas and beliefs, and you're letting things come through. And to me, that's to get to that state took. It was a crazy journey of many, many years and many hardships, and to be in it now, it just makes much more sense than what I was told to believe things were. So when you pull the mask back, it's like you can you can be living in a dream, or you can wake up in the dream and be like, "Whoa, I'm in a dream. This is crazy," or you can awaken from the dream. And awakening from the dream is the recognition that you are this character that you've been playing, and that you're in a stage of characters. And you're awake from that because you know no longer need to participate as that character. Now maybe it's nice to have a character to slip into to exist in certain settings, and that's fun. But you're not attached to that character somehow fulfilling you or being who you are, or saying that because I'm this and I'm that and I'm a lawyer and I make this much money and I have this. It's like you don't have to attach those meanings as though they're like they have some sort of intrinsic value. And that's how I felt with the same thing with Brothers Green and experiencing a certain level of fame. I started to get lost in the number: this many followers, this many subscribers, this people comment this about me. I'm like, no, I'm just a vehicle and a vessel to share these gifts and what's coming through me with other people, and how people respond to that. It's like when I write a book, how people respond to it. It's I can just do my best to translate authentically what I'm experiencing. But the reason I've been able to write so much and get out so much. Stuff in the past few years is because I'm not attached to the outcome of it, because I'm not worried that if I write a book and people don't think it's great, that then that somehow means something about me, because there is no me to be upset or whatever. I love that. It seems like the idea that really seems to be a through line is freedom that I'm hearing from a lot of your stories of by allowing the creativity to come through you. It's almost a freedom I'm hearing. There's a meditation teacher named Light Watkins that introduced me to the idea of the freedom of choicelessness. And I think that in itself is almost like alludes into your story around like if we're no longer choosing our identities, there's like a freedom of like the blank slate almost. And I think that would be an interesting way to move into your barefoot experience in that it seems almost a celebration of the freedom, right? Like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong for sure, but it sounds like you're almost celebrating that lack of identity in some ways through connecting with nature. And like you mentioned, the marathon, all these big barefoot accomplishments aren't for the accomplishments themselves, but rather the journey of them. Like, how would you connect this stripping away of masks and ego and identity and then what you do presently within the creative space of barefoot adventures? Yeah, that's a good question. I... I, they're all the same thing on some level. You know, for me, the stripping away of the, the false self was the first piece. And I thought at some point that was it because that process is like, it's, it's almost like, so Jed's third book is called Spiritual Warfare. Cause he's like, this isn't all like pretty and gratitude. Like going through this process isn't just like love and flowers and gratitude and peace. And that's a beautiful thing. But if you think that's just it, a lot of people are very like delusional and kind of hiding from it can also be feel like war at times, like to like battle these false pieces of yourself and to burn them in the ground. It can be like hell, you know. But once you get through hell, you get to this this heaven thing. And um, so for me, it was the emotional experience that happened first, the emotional, mental, where I'm stripping these pieces away. 
but then it's like I have this physical body and it also has limits and it also has its own beliefs and when I started thinking about my foot it's like if I'm willing to question everything in my life on a mental level why not question everything on a physical level same with the things that I eat with the places that I am with the clothes that I wear and before the feet I saw that like I really like wearing very light flowy clothes and I wear a lot of women's clothes um, because it's just the way women's clothes are designed feel more comfortable to me and it's it makes me just feel like I can be in this state of flow when I used to wear jeans for example my legs were kind of stuck and I started to see how most clothing is like very restricting and it's, if your body feels physically restricted how can you be emotionally mentally expressed so when I moved to Boulder last year in March, like right before lockdown hit, I always loved being barefoot. It was something like I just enjoyed. Like any chance I could take my shoes off, I never liked shoes. But you know, my dad's a podiatrist and I was raised in a house and my sister's a podiatrist. Like I was raised in a house of, yeah, you wear your shoes, you play sports, you wear shoes and you need, if you have an issue, you put in an orthotic or you put in padding and get different shoes. And it was just like this obvious thing. Just like, yeah, you know, you. We have to work hard and get a nine to five job and make money xyz all these things that were obvious too on a, a personal level so when i started when it kind of hit me i was like oh i haven't actually examined what it means to really wear shoes yet and i was hiking one day and some voice inside my head just said like take your shoes off and even though i had been barefoot at the beach and on grass i had never tried to hike barefoot that was cr- like literally it was a crazy concept and then i just did it and immediately i knew it was the right thing to do and I wasn't able to do it like for that long. At first it was maybe five or 10 minutes of hiking. And then I hiked again and all of a sudden I hiked, you know, three miles and I'm like, whoa. And I'm hiking on these you know, mountains of rocks everywhere and ice and snow at times. And the more I dove into this concept of shoe, which you could say rubber sole, I think the Beatles, you know, the album rubber sole, if you think about that, like the sole, the bottom of our foot is called the sole, right? We're always searching for a soul. It's like this fascinating thing. Where is the soul? Is it real? Is it here? Is it the whole, whatever? To me, the soul is like the foot because it's this thing that communicates with the ground. So when I have a shoe on and I have this synthetic soul, this rubber or whatever material that's blocking me from the ground, in a weird way without knowing it, I'm saying I don't trust myself and I don't trust Mother Nature. Like we have, it's like wearing like a condom or something like on my foot. Like it's like I need to be protected you know, protected from this. And there might be situations where protection is valuable. And I'm not saying shoes don't serve a purpose, but to just shove our shoes in a sock and then put them in a foot or a shoe and just put our feet in a foot. Um, I call it like foot prison, you know, because you basically take away the functioning of your foot. So when I started taking my shoes off and I started seeing how incredible my foot was and how disconnected I was from that, that my hands are these amazing things. I can play guitar, I can cook, I can garden, I can do all kinds of stuff. And yet, why is my shoe all day? Like my foot is in a shoe that's like this all day. And it's just stuck here when it wants to be out and free. And now my feet are like hands almost and I'd never go back. I know you are a man of symbolism as you described yourself earlier. And to me, both of your stories touch upon the idea of empty canvas mentality, right? Empty canvas mindset. And I know you're a Buddhist practitioner and I practice my faith. My practicing faith is Christianity. And I know there is a very famous Bible verse talks about unless you're like the children, the gates of heaven will not be open for you, right? And of course, he's not, and the Bible is not alluding to the 
literal children, since there's only a small part of the population of children, there's adults and elders. But I think the Bible and Jesus was alluding to the fact that unless you have the purity and the emptiness of what a child has, since a child is born with bare feet and they're born with no prejudice, no exposure, no confinement of uh, ideology or beliefs, they're very pure. And in a sense, your journey with bare feet, it also symbolizes empty canvas mindset, literally so, right? Because like you talked about, once you take away the mask, once you strip away the false identity, once you strip away the shoe prison or the soul prison, so to speak, you release this soul, which is your feet, which is very empty. And you get to experience the world through a brand new lens, which is now you're experiencing for the past one plus years with without wearing shoes. Um, and of course, I know you explained this over the video that we alluded to in the introduction that went viral. And once again, that's how I came across your content. I didn't know about your whole host of different identity, like your former YouTube life, your former identity, and I just came across this. So it's fascinating for me, but I definitely would love to, for you to highlight, uh, especially you talked about once you realized after your initial 10 minutes hike and then evolved into three miles. And then now reflecting back on it, you've done a 26 mile hike and a marathon in the mountains. But would you be able to tell the listeners and people who have no idea who you are, what you represent, what you embody, the actual incredible, I don't know what else to describe, but incredible transformation on a physical level of what your feet evolved or shifted into once you were able to shed that mask. And for the empty canvas thing, I'll just say, you know, you know the, the common, is the glass half full of glass, half empty thing, right? To me, I say it's neither. The glass is, is overflowing with all kinds of crap. And the first thing you need to do is just dump it all out. You know, don't wonder whether it's full or empty. It's just your glass is filled with all this crap. Dump it out and then go from there. So this is a little bit of a side note, but when it comes to this process of awakening or being clear or universal consciousness or whatever you want to call it, like to me, that should be the focus for anyone as much as you can, whatever time you have, that should be number one, is getting clear on who you are and who you are not. And in that process, once you do that, then if you want to start a business, you know, if you want to do a nonprofit or work at a farm or whatever thing you want to do, go to med school. Cool, but first get clear. And our society is a bit backwards where it's like, no, you need to do these things and then that will define you. If you work really hard and you make lots of money, then you'll feel good. You might be depressed now, but that's okay. You just need to work harder and then you'll get to it. I'm like, no the other way right so get clear on who you are and what that means and then you develop this superpower of discernment and the superpower of being in flow and then things start to make sense so I just wanted to add that um, so for me this this foot journey has been awesome I'm just like looking at my feet right now when I moved to Colorado I was in New York City and walking a lot and I was kind of intimidated to be honest coming here because everybody's in great shape and everybody runs and bikes everywhere. And it was just kind of like this, what the heck is going on? You know, there's like pretty people in New York City, but like the level of physical fitness here was just really intense. And then coming to the trails, people running by me on the trails. I'm like, people are running in the mountains? What is, what, this is crazy. Flash forward three years, I'm like running like half naked, barefoot in the mountains with nothing. And people are like pointing at me and very confused. And so it's, you never know what's going to happen and why. And I've just learned to trust that. Um, but what I've seen is that, and I've studied a lot of natural movement at this point, and 
even though I'm a level ball movement, you could say it's natural, but when I say natural movement, I mean rather than being kind of in a gym or in more of a sterile environment, like what is it like just to be outside and play and run up in the mountains or roll around in the grass and just like let your body move? We become very static, right? It's like in the, the gym movement, um, I don't know if you know, read the book Born to Run. You guys read that? Pieces. Like a big, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a big, I mean, that book, I was doing the, you know, the barefoot thing for a while, didn't know anybody that had really been into it, and I was doing some research, and then somebody was like, you should read this book called Born to Run. That's when I got into running, because it's it's not about barefoot running so much, but it's about this tribe of superhuman runners that they live in, in Mexico in the Copper Canyons called um, the uh, Tarumara and Arumuri, yeah. And they basically, like, they've been running their whole life, and they can run 50 miles, 100 miles, like, just in these very basic sandals. And they smile on their face, never get tired, drink very little, eat very little, and it's kind of like this, it's almost one of those things where it seems like an outlier, like, how is this possible? But in the book, he talks about all these different ways that people have learned to tune into this primal thing, and that as humans, we're, like, literally, like, evolved to be able to run. That's how we learned how to survive. We could outrun not only like outrun but run animals to their death essentially and so like because as humans we can control our breath and our movement and we have sweat glands we actually can run even though we're not nearly as fast as almost any animal we can run significantly longer because of those things so we started uncovering that and next thing you know i was just wanting to go out and run but there really wasn't any information on fully barefoot running very little bit but what I'm discovering here in Colorado, it's the same with growing food. Like, I can learn about how to garden, I can read books, but the environment that I'm in, if I'm, like, I'm pointing right now to this backyard, it's basically up a mountainside. It's very rocky, very dry. And to learn how to grow there, like, I had to figure it out, you know, and talk to people and just, like, make mistakes. Same case with barefoot running on these trails. There's plenty of videos on running barefoot, there's plenty of videos on trail running. But there's very few people that have kind of, like, Put them all together so i started to see this place of like hmm, just like with the cooking stuff many years ago when i saw that no one was cooking like budget you know creative meals like hmm, how can i fit in what am i passionate about how can i like dive into this more and learn more and be a bit of a guinea pig for it so i started studying the foot and how the foot is naturally meant to function i started learning about safe ways to transition my foot because when your foot comes out of a shoe and you're running on rocky trails, it's painful and it can be scary. You don't want to hurt yourself. And I look at it like a, a seedling, you know, when, you know, when you're in your seed, if a shoe is almost like a seed, it's like protection, but it's protection, but like the seed is stuck in this one state. So when you give the seed some water and some nutrients, it blossoms and suddenly it's this really small, little tiny, like uh, seedling. And the seedling is very vulnerable. So when your foot comes out of a shoe, it's very vulnerable. It can get cut, it can get hurt. There's all these things that can happen to it. But if you give it the proper care over time, it turns into this giant, beautiful plant or a tree or a flower. And that's how my foot really feels. So I had to really nurture it, take care of it, massage it, soak it, um, be really careful about how I ran, learn a completely different style of running. Um, the type, the way I run is, drastically different from anything I'd ever been taught about running. And now my foot is strong. Now I can even step on glass and I'm okay. And I can run up trails and go off trail and do all kinds of things. And it, it took, you know, this year or however long to like really dive into it. Um, but it's so worth it because I feel like I have a shoe on my foot and 
I love, I was out on the trail today and people see me barefoot and they ask me about it and I'll gladly stop and talk because it's one of those things where there's so much assumed, like almost ignorance around shoes. It's just become like, even, even going into stores, it's like, oh, if you're barefoot, you know, you must be poor or homeless or a dirty hippie or something, you know? And there's a lot of these like just assumptions that we make in our culture and I just want to spread some awareness of like, hey, the foot is actually beautiful. Like, and the stuff that your shoe does to your foot is gnarly. Most runners have knee injury, back injury, all kinds of injuries because they're literally wearing a shoe that's not designed to be on their foot and they're trying to compensate by adding more cushioning, doing all these things. And I'm like, the foot is a natural thing. Learn to like awaken the foot, you know, take off the mask and find out how incredible it is. It's, it really is amazing. And, and even if you're someone that can't run or whatever situation you're in, everyone can put a little love into their foot and just start to love on their feet more. This thing that literally roots us to the earth and to the ground is incredible. And just by connecting to it more and putting your feet in the ground and grounding and releasing energy and even the health benefits of just grounding yourself, um, which are huge. There's actually a book, I know you guys can't see on the thing, but this is a book called Earthing. And it's about this guy actually in Colorado who he was working for like the phone lines and he was like in, in cable companies and he was realizing that like when you, when you plug something in you need to have a grounding wire electricity has to ground go somewhere otherwise it causes lots of issues and he's like I wonder if humans are the same and he started doing all these studies and research and realized that as humans we connect you know, we, we collect all this static and, and intense energy and if we don't put our feet in the ground and actually like release it back into the earth that it causes inflammation and pain and all kinds of health issues so he started experimenting with people and realizing that like even his mother who was like 90 years old with like had arthritis and terrible pain and joint pain could barely move by grounding her suddenly she was like playing tennis and doing and, you know moving around and doing all these crazy things so even just that alone even if you can't run take your shoes off put them in the earth like it's amazing like wait why have i been disconnected from this from the earth and when I ran my marathon, a guy came up to me after, and he was his knees were covered in blood. And he's probably like around maybe 50 years old, looked super athletic. And he's like, I noticed, like, because I was the only person that did it barefoot, and, and no one had ever tried to barefoot. And he's like, I've never seen anyone run barefoot. I'm curious to learn more about it. I've spent thousands of dollars on shoes. And I fell seven times during this race because my shoes didn't fit me properly. And I don't know what to do. and. And we had this whole really nice conversation and it kind of hit me like, as a runner, if you're out on the trail, like for the most part, unless you trip and fall, you're never actually gonna touch the ground. And that was kind of a big like, oh, yeah. Like I would rather slowly walk a mile barefoot than run 10, because I actually think there'll probably more health benefits as I started to see. Because it's really not about the distance, but about the presence. And people that know plenty more than I do, but in a way you can't really teach barefoot trail running because every step is completely different so it's like rather you have to be so present I rarely listen to music now when I run I used to love listening to music when I ran it kind of would pump me up but if I'm listening to music and I'm not paying attention and I'm not listening to all the sounds around me you know that's where I could get injured so it's like it forces you just to be so present in the moment and what's cool when I started studying reflexology is like oh the whole body is mapped out on your foot reflexology so they can say like, okay, you know, certain, and same with your hand, but it's like certain points, certain pressure points associate with your neck and your 
head and your heart and your lung and your kidney. And you can get a reflexology session and I love giving that to people and it feels really good. And I realized that when I go barefoot on the trails, like I'm hitting most of those points. So my feet often come like after a run, they actually feel really good. At first they were very sore, but now like you, we, you know, we did a pretty intense run yesterday through all kinds of terrain and I'm just rubbing my feet now and they feel really good. Um, so like your foot gets to have this workout and it gets stronger. Yeah. It's, I don't know. Just, um, I love feet cause they're just so cool. I just want to add a little more context for the listeners of who haven't seen your videos or what your feet look like after the evolution of a year you went through without shoes. Your feet actually physically expanded and became more flatted and more obviously strong and robust. And you couldn't actually fit into your shoes, right? The shoes you used to fit to after you barely fit or you could have been fit your uh, feet in? It would feel like I was suffocating if I tried. Um, actually, I had a, it's weird because I had a friend who I got him really into the barefoot stuff and he bought more minimalist style shoes and I put, he's like, try them on. I put them on and even putting on anything on my foot was like really strange. Um, yeah, if you, a really good way to kind of get a sense of what your foot looks like in a shoe is to pull out that little liner that's inside. Say you take a dress shoe, if you pull that out and you put your foot on that, like that's kind of how your foot is forming into the shoe. And usually you'll be blown away by how crazy that is. And another part too is that you know, as a kid, my dad always said I had flat feet. I get asked this a lot. What about flat feet? I had flat feet, you know, or raised arches or fallen arches, all these things. So he used to have me wear an orthotic and I just intuitively, I hated them. And orthotics are basically these things that mold to your arch and they like give you some sense of arch, arch supporting your shoe. But I hated it. I just, I would wear it for like a day and then I would take it out and like this just is weird. In some cases, orthotics might be necessary for people. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to say that I'm a doctor and I know everything. This is only my experience. I'm very clear about that. If it resonates though, it's worth looking into. Um, orthotics can be really helpful, but it's almost like if you were to break your arm and you were to put a cast on, when your arm heals, you're not going to keep your cast on. And that's kind of what happens with the foot often. People just wear them forever. Like they assume they have to wear it forever. So it might be able to help you with something, but ultimately you have to learn how to strengthen your foot condition your foot and start to bring that strength back. So in talking to podiatrists, I started to see that they're taught to label feet a very specific way. You're flat footed, you have a fallen arch, whatever it is. So they see the arch as this static thing. But what I've seen from barefoot running is that my arch is dynamic. And the whole point of an arch is that it can, you know, it can span, compress, like it, it moves. And my foot is dynamic. It has more bones. I have more bones in the foot than anywhere else in the body. I have more nerve endings in your foot than anywhere else in your body. So your foot's communicating with the ground every single step. It's telling you exactly how to step, how to put the right amount of pressure. If I'm running and I go to, you know, I, I start to step on a rock that's sharp, immediately my body knows instantaneously because of that information to brace itself and to switch and move, right? So there's all these things that you don't even realize are possible until you go barefoot. So when it comes to being flat footed, it's like, I can just say, okay, my foot's flat. I need to raise my arch and put this thing in to keep my arch raised. Or I can start to notice that, okay, that arch actually wants to move and it wants to go down. It's like a spring, right? It wants to push myself off. So you can run and you can do a lot of stuff, but you're missing so much of the functioning of your foot that it ends up, you have to like overcompensate with other parts. That's why runners do have knee injuries, back injuries and all kinds of things. 
Um, so when you start getting more into the natural function of your foot, it's like, oh, the arch isn't one way or another, it's dynamic. And maybe I need to change it and need to work it out. But as I start to awaken those muscles, things start to shift. And when we put in false arch support, it actually destroys your arch over time. Because as people know with arches, the way they're meant, if you're pushing up on an arch, it collapses the arch. And I, so I look at the foot, but to me, it's no different than literally anything else. Anything else that was like sold to us that maybe wasn't real. And I consider myself a walking science experiment. So until I can prove something to myself or not, I'm not just going to blindly take someone's belief. I need to fully dive into it because they may have done all the studies, but they haven't studied me. You know, and they haven't had my life. And I, I trust that more than anything. I don't have the, I have no teachings. I have no thing that I subscribe to beyond like my own sense of trust and inner awareness and my ability and willingness to really dive into something to see if it makes sense or not. To bring back real quick the, the Buddha thing, that's something I, I really took away from the Buddha early on. He said, he's like, you know, most religion and most teachings are like this or a closed fist, right? He's like, Buddhism is an open hand. It's like, come see for yourself. I'm not here to tell you that my way is the right way. Try it on, try it on and see what happens. You know, and like, you need to discover that for yourself. Don't trust me. Don't listen to me because I look like something. And that's, that's been a huge blessing to experience. Yeah, I just want to write on my previous question real quick, uh, because I think the concept or the theme of integration and integration is something we talk about on this show, whether we interview a psychotherapist or any mental health advocates that a lot of times people view something as not doing the work. Like, oh, I'm going to a therapy session for a week, one day out of the week, that's the work. Or I have a coach, coaching call once a week, that's the work. And we often talk about how that's just a navigation system. The actual work is the driving itself, which a lot of people don't do. And integration is a missing ingredient in a lot of people's lives. And I hear that theme in your story in terms of the transition from shoes to no shoes is you need to, once again, detach from the outcome of a mile or any achievement or you know putting yourself into a new box of oh look at me i'm running without shoes on right because we don't want to go from box to a box but rather detach from all that and just let it integrate uh, i have a two question one's a personal curiosity it may not yield anything so please forgive me if that's the case but to me it sounds like you have some sort of exposure to acupuncture medicine or in terms of some sort of eastern medicine practices and i spent six and a half years in china and a lot of the medicinal approach in China, at least in, in the East Asia, they all uphold the integrity and the importance and the sacredness of your feet. It's very common culturally in the East. And of course, everything's nuances. That's why we want to have this show to talk to different people to dig at the nuances. But of course, in the Western American context, that's not really the case. So I was just curious about if you have any exposure in that sense and talk a little bit about that. And the second thing is, uh, once you are able to answer that question, or if there's not, nothing I like, and feel free to continue this question is in terms of the integration is I know we've been asking you and hammering about all the tangible benefits and uh, the, I guess tangible tactics for the listeners. So on that sense, uh, we would love to hear parts of your integrated benefits that you know stemmed from your barefoot culture, not in a running sense, not in a trail running sense, not in a container of running or just doing hikes but in other aspects of your life. Because to me, it sounds like walking and running bare feet yields a lot more dividends than just within the container of running. 
So first off, there is no perfect state of health. I just want to get that across to anybody because I recognize the same thing of like, once I hit my perfect weight, then everything's going to work out. Or once I have my bank account, once I hit a million dollars, the same, once I, once I have a million subscribers, then I'll be happy or whatever the thing is. Because life is transient, it's always changing. You know, one day you can feel good, one day you might not. Our emotions are flowing and shifting and changing. And, and I relate that to integration because when I, a number of years ago, I did some work with ayahuasca and I had worked with other plant medicines before, but that was a big one. And it took me about 10 years before I even like found the right place and really felt comfortable. Like there was a calling, but it was like, okay, I'm ready to like give myself to this plant. So. I went to Peru and there's a lot of prep work to do for ayahuasca. There's cleaning your diet out and a number of things. When I got there and when I did the ceremonies, and that's a whole different, that could be its own podcast, I'm not going to get into it, but a big takeaway I had, and it was a very profound, powerful experience, but was that the actual drinking of the medicine is like one little piece of what ayahuasca really is. In fact, the minute I decided I want to do ayahuasca, I already felt the medicine. I hadn't even tried it before, but I literally felt the medicine. And not only that, but 10 years ago when I first heard about it, I wrote a song called Ayahuasca. And flash forward 10 years, I'm in ceremony playing this song and, and my facilitators were like, how did you write that song 10 years ago? Like that, you literally like knew ayahuasca already. You must have, you know? So it's like, there's these really interesting subtle senses and forces and energies that are like there. So to think that just like you say, going to therapy or in this case, like drinking the medicine is like, cool, I drink it and everything happens. It's like, no, the integration is so important and maybe more important in ways because you can have a mind blowing experience just like I've done hallucinogenics and been like, whoa, well, you know, everything's connected and this is crazy. But like, if then I go back to life and my life looks the same, I'm around the same people and, and all my habits are re-reinforced, nothing's gonna change. So one of the big benefits of being barefoot is that like it forces you to change everything. We were, my partner and I spent five months in Central America and it was really easy to be barefoot there. Not because everybody does it, but because it's just more accepted. I could walk, I could be at the beach and walk into a, a store and be barefoot at a restaurant. I came back to Boulder and I tried to go to a grocery store barefoot and they threw me out and I was like, the heck, man? I'm like, well, we don't want you to, you know, get cut and you know, glass and this and that. And I was like, I can. That's fine. I can step on glass. Like, I'm getting ready to run a marathon. You know, like, I don't. The glass is going to be a problem. So he acted like, you know, it was more about for my safety. But when I talked to him, he's like, you just can't be in here barefoot. You know, it's just against the rules. And um, side note, it is. It's legal to be barefoot anywhere in America. Places, private property can kick you out. They have that choice, of course. But the main, the unfortunate reason that barefoot is an issue is because back when discrimination laws came out and they said you couldn't discriminate on someone based on their color or race, store owners were trying to find creative ways to keep people out. So they created the whole no shoes, no shirt, no service thing, targeting people that didn't have as much money, targeting minorities, targeting homeless people, targeting hippies and, and people that they didn't want in their stores. And it's unfortunate that that's kind of stuck. But I also, I can't blame like a store for not wanting to be in there barefoot. I just don't, for the most part, don't go to stores that won't let me be barefoot occasionally. Like I'm not someone who's gonna just like, I'm not someone like, oh, I just did. So I'm willing in certain situations if I have to. But what I found is like, I gravitate towards places that allow me to be barefoot because it fits in with a certain resonance that I'm holding. 
and there's this guy we share the same last name rob greenfield and he's like a very radical socialist cool dude and we went for a walk um before i moved to colorado we went for a barefoot walk together and this is actually before i got really into the barefoot thing and he's been barefoot for a long time maybe in like 10 years or something and one thing he had mentioned in a video of his he talks about being barefoot and he's like it kind of it keeps me out of places that i probably shouldn't be in he's like maybe i can't go to a bar barefoot but like i don't want to go to a bar and like what's well, i don't i don't need to be in a place like that so it's kind of how i see like the foot guides me because my foot wants to be in nature it wants to be on the ground it feels really good in the ground it doesn't feel very good on artificial surfaces so like it's that where it's like oh taking off the foot it's going to change the choices and the places that i can go but chances are the places that I'll then want to go are much more aligned with what matters to me. Because I feel less and less, you know, interested in being in big cities and I just want to be out in nature. Um, so that's definitely a benefit that's kind of come from it. And it's like this integration where when you start to choose to live barefoot, um, and like you said, without going from one box to another, I'm not just like suddenly this is it. And this, I'm open to anything that's possible. But when barefoot starts to make perfect sense to me, the integration comes from learning how to live in that way because not a lot of people get it and for some people it's easy to say just put on a shoe man like you know we're hiking together you're, you're slowing us down or whatever the, the, there's all these reasons but to me it makes sense and maybe i'm slower when i hike and, and usually that's not the case but let's say i'm with someone who has a shoe on and they're faster than i am i understand the benefits of being able to walk through nature faster but i feel very connected to it and so to like be able to be in this slow state of integration, it slows my whole life down. It makes me think about what really matters, where I should be, who I should be around. And it's in the slowing down of life that I actually start to get on those deeper levels of savoring what it is. I love that you brought up that point of slowing down and connecting with nature because that was kind of the exact way my mind went as you were telling these stories. It's like you're using your foot as not just a physical vehicle but almost like an emotional or mental vehicle of like what things to lean into what voices to follow uh, at least i'm sensing from your stories and that connection with nature is kind of the place i'd like to go next in a more i guess holistic lens of it's clear that this relationship with barefoot walking has changed your life but in the nature sense using these as a vehicle to connect with nature. How do you look at, you know, Mother Earth as a teacher or a guide of some sort? Like I'm just sensing a environmentalism undertone of a lot of the tangible ideas that you've just brought up, but I think I'm fascinated with your relationship with nature. Obviously going from Brooklyn to Boulder are very opposite sides of the coin. So I'm sure that played into your transition in some respects, going from super urban, large city into Boulder, which as I was there three days ago, was just immaculate all everywhere, trees for days. So I'm sure it's had some effect on your life and I would love to hear your thoughts around it. Yeah, and Boulder, first off, is extremely beautiful. There's a lot of things that I maybe, I don't say struggle with, but that I see that are not in alignment. Um, it's almost like a novelty to live here. There's a lot of wealth and you know I feel fortunate to get to stay at my friend's place right now and it was great to go through like the pandemic and to be here and I feel very called to the land but a lot of Boulder is because there's a lot of wealth it's almost like people are at a museum so I sense that so I like being the weirdo barefoot person who I do a lot of foraging forage for 
berries and greens and medicines and you're going to the grocery store to buy XYZ and it's like, well, look in your backyard, you might have something that's already there growing. And um, right before, so when I wrote Walking With Your Best Friend, right before I put it out, my partner, we were on a barefoot hike and she's like, she asked me like what I wanted to get out of it. Like, she's like, if there's one big takeaway people could take away from this book, what would it be? Because I think on the surface, it's like running a marathon, how to do that, how to get into all these things. But really the number one thing that I want people to maybe feel is like, it's in the taking off your shoe and the putting it in the ground that you develop this sense of connection to mother nature. And the deeper you get connected, and it's not just through being barefoot, but like the deeper you get connected to being in nature, spending time, hiking, foraging, collecting wild things, like tuning into that space, it just seems to be a natural shift that you're gonna wanna do less harm. Because it's easy, you know, living in a city and fast food and just to throw trash and waste and do all these things that you don't see the impact. But when you're in nature and you start to recognize the impact that you have, it's like, it's just a little bit easier to just feel more connected and be like, yeah, why wait, why would I waste? And I don't want people to think that like, there's some perfect state. I know there's some extreme, I'm not an extreme like environmentalist where it's like, I refuse to touch plastic and all these things, but rather it's the awareness that over time, the more connected I am to nature, the more I learn. And when I see something that doesn't make sense to me, when I'm like, wait, I've been doing this thing that's really harmful to the planet, for example. And when I see that, the more I see that, the less I'm likely to do it. So that's talk about integration, talk about slow changes. It's like, I didn't just take my foot, my shoe off one day. Uh, I didn't just take my shoe off one day, but when it happened, all these other things start to ripple out. And it's like, oh, this is beautiful. Like I want my feet to be on the ground. I don't want to wear shoes because it's more stuff that I have to buy. It's more waste that happens. And like, if I can just, even just on that level, if I can just focus on my foot, make my foot strong, that's awesome. I was hiking with my roommate once and he had gotten these shoes and within like three months, the tread was wearing off. And he's like, I, I spent 150 bucks on these hiking shoes and they're already like breaking down. And I was like, oh, as your shoe gets weaker, my foot gets stronger. And it's like this mm. interesting concept of, yeah, it's gonna take time, this isn't easy. But, you know, my foot gets stronger and it gets to be in commune with nature. So I, uh, I love growing food. I love finding wild food and making medicines and educating people around that. And it really was sparked from New York City. So living there and when the recession hit in 2008 and I you know, lost my day job and had very little money, I just had to learn how to survive. And I started learning about foraging and that there were people doing these walks in the park and literally going around like Central Park, Prospect Park in Brooklyn and finding wild edibles and that blew my mind away. So when I moved to Colorado and I finally had like space to grow food, it was this deep level of excitement. But part of me had that mentality of being in New York City, like gotta get this done, right? Like I gotta like get through this, like a chore. And then it hit me and it's like, oh no, it's not about the destination. Like it's like, I wanted to do this because I want to be in it. So the more I slow down, like now picking and eating like a fresh strawberry is as enjoyable to me as putting my hands in the dirt and like breaking up soil so that I can plant something because I'm present with both of the things. And I used to think it was about like, I just want to put a tree in the ground, get a bunch of apples, and that will be like, I'm just waiting for the apples. It's like, no, nature is abundant. And when I sit with her, she teaches me so much. And it might sound like hippie and weird, strange, and I'm sure it is, but like it's really 
it's like that's where I feel the most peace that's where I feel the most connection and I feel very much like what can I do to help support this great big thing that we're in and I'm willing to give whatever I need to give even my own life to support that you know if, if as humans like if we're causing destruction and all these things it's like what do I need to give up because anything's worth it to maintain the beauty of what all this is we could definitely end our episode here but we won't but yeah i think your relationship with nature is frankly just beautiful and it reminds me of the similarities when you described your intuition with the universe is you view that as a person you find a more doable viable tangible step to build that trust likewise in this sense you also view mother nature as a person right you're cultivating that trust you're cultivating that relationship similar to I'm guessing your book series and the way you cultivate a relationship with your true self by shedding the mask, by shedding the layers of onions. And it's very inspiring and it reminds me of a conversation we had on this show with a former guest, Ross. He's a you know pretty prominent YouTuber and he's an arborist in the Philadelphia region. He's known as a king of fakes in the suburban counties. And he shared a study with us. It's called a happiness study with soil where there are microbiomes in soil and simply interacting with our fingers and soil literally help us with our happiness, with the hormones, with depression, and the benefits are ongoing. And just to talk about what you touched upon briefly in, in terms of there's more neurons, there's more nervous system in your feet than anywhere else in our body. And of course there are with our fingers and our electrons and nervous system are being firing and we receive signals in our brain. So if you just look at it from a very physical and like geometry level in terms of the size of your feet, and the size of your hands. And I know you talked about the fact that you view your foot as anything else in this world. Um, so I do think the benefits are extremely, extremely tangible, even for those skeptics who have the receptivity, who are willing to learn and tap into that curiosity. So I just wanted to highlight that for the people is, I really love the fact that you don't just view your relationship with running because you don't identify yourself as the boxer of a runner. You don't really label your relationship with mother nature, your intuition, or with the universe, but rather it's just any relationship that needs to be taken care of, that needs to be cultivated, that needs to be loved. So I just want to highlight that for the people. Yeah, and, and, and to your point about like, I mean, maybe I see those things like as people, like nature, but it's really more just about the relationship. Yeah, I can't necessarily, like I say mother nature because it, there is a tangibleness to it but it's like this recognition of it's all connected and what is my relationship to that? Because it's easy to think that relationships are about romanticism, you know, like my romantic relationship, we all hear that, right? But how relationship is how we relate to anything. And something that I love, I forget where I heard this from, but if you're in a relationship with someone or you have a friendship and you're labeling them as something, you know, they're this, they're that or whatever, well, you're actually not in relation to them anymore. The minute you label them and define them, you're no longer relating to them as who they are in that moment. You're relating to them as some past version of themselves. So you're not actually in relation. So to truly be in relation to anything is to be present with it in that moment, whether it is a person or a tree. And I, my whole relationship with even bugs, you know, insects shifted, even mosquitoes. Hmm. And it was, that was partially from uh, ayahuasca. <laughs> but I had some downloads about mosquitoes and that they're actually sacred. And, you know, I'm, I'm not here to say what's real or what's not real, but 
it shifted my relationship and it showed me that like the way we treat mosquitoes in life is the way we treat most things. If we don't see any benefit to them, what do we want to do? We just want to wipe them out. They're annoying. They're the disease, fear, all these things. Let's just kill them, spray them, create technology to take them away. But what we're not seeing is the relationship that we have to them. Maybe what's really going on. And like as humans, it's not even about mosquitoes, but how many things in our life we just don't see the benefit because we're too small minded to see the benefit or the connection. So we just assume that there's no benefit and then we wipe it out. That's this farm that I'm a member of. It's an amazing farm in outside of Boulder. And um, they were talking about how like when you have a garden, you know, you can have like a drip water system and you can just have the drip water go to specific plants. Like it goes, I tell you what I used to have in Denver, water my fruit trees or water my tomatoes and it skipped everything else. But what happens is you're not supporting the whole system. You're just giving the things that you want water. If you were to see my garden now, I have six or eight areas throughout the property where there's plants growing. And they're all wild. There's no cages, there's no protection. Any other neighbor that I look at, they have cages surrounding their gardens. Cause they're like, well, you gotta keep, there's bears, there's mountain lions, there's squirrels, there's birds. There's, we have flocks of deer come by every day and they just eat whatever they want. But more in a concept of connection, you get the permaculture is you grow enough for everyone because you're not just growing for yourself. You work with the natural habitat. You don't just wipe out an area and say, this is my garden. I'm going to force plant these things that don't want to grow here. You find out what works with the local things that are native here. And instead of protecting stuff, I just let it grow. So a deer the other day ate my pepper plant. Like, all right, cool, the deer ate the pepper plant. And what's amazing though, is the way I'm growing is so few things actually get eaten. Go back right back to impermanence in Buddhism. Because my relationship to them isn't, this is mine. I'm not attached to this. It's the same romantic relationship. I can look at my partner and say, she's mine. And like, you know, and she needs to be this way because when she is this way, then I get X, Y, Z. Or I can just love her for whoever she is in that moment. You know, so when I'm gardening, I'm looking at my relationship to these plants. I don't own these plants. I get to tend to them. We get to work. They're healing me as much as I'm helping them and watering them. And that became very clear one day when I was just really tuning into these plants and looking at them and, I was like, whatever you guys need, just let me know. Just give me a little signal. And they do. I'm no expert gardener. I'm learning new things every day. But I'm just like, whatever you need, just let me know and we'll kind of go from there. And we learn together. And so I get to cultivate this relationship, not just through reading a book. I've read many books and I've watched many YouTube videos. But at the end of the day, all I can do is go out there and just tune in and learn and observe. And it's the same thing with bare feet. So that I can watch videos on technique and I can just be thinking about my technique and I can be helpful. And also I have to just tune in and just be really present with how my feet feeling, how's my body feel? Do I need to shift this? Do I need to be more light on my feet? And that spills over, I think, to anything. Thank you for listening to another episode of Discover More. We release a new episode every Monday on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And it would really appreciate if you have subscribed and shared this with your friends. We hope you enjoyed this episode and join us next week in the journey of discovering more through intentional dialogues.